John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. And you can turn to it in your Bible, on your phone. We have it back here. If you don't have a Bible, we have some right down here. We'd love for that to be a gift for you today. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails have been, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Through the doors, Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. When he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God, Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Vince, for reading that. Morning, everybody. Um, Whenever I lead worship and preach on the same day, I like to point out that I am the same person who was just right here five minutes ago. It's me. My name's Kenny. I'm so glad to be with you all today. Um, If we haven't met yet, uh, thank you for visiting us and joining us. Um, for, as Vince was saying, the manliest New City Church gathering ever, um, because so many of the, of the ladies who make our church awesome are not with us this morning. Um, but yeah, we're glad that you're all here. Um, I know we have several guests here today, and uh, I was really glad to see um, some familiar faces I haven't seen in a while. I wanted to say hi to Jim and Sandy um, and welcome them back. They've been in San Francisco for a while. And uh, they have just been a constant blessing to this church, even though they haven't lived here for a few years. Um, They have supported and prayed for you, and uh, I just want to honor them and thank them for that. And um, yeah, man, there's several several people here today. Um, But uh, I don't have time to do all the shout-outs. I have to preach, too. Um, So the... uh, the title for my message today is I believe but there's a will not and I crossed through it um, because it describes a little bit of the journey that Thomas went on 
uh, in this passage as Vince read. And I want us to look at that over the next few minutes. Um, but before I jump into that passage, um, I went to a, uh, not really a concert, a house show this week. Has anyone ever been to a house show? Does that mean it's a concert in a house? All right, same thing, but... Um, I went to a, a house show this week, and it was at Dave and Kirstie's house, and it was uh, a musician named Derek Webb. And uh, some of you may have heard of him, and others may have not heard of him. Um, I've been a fan since I was in college, um, and the thing that always drew me to Derek Webb was his lyrics, because he had these kind of cutting lyrics that made you like think about what was true, or like made you think, like, oh, have I been going at this wrong, or... They would make you almost just want to repent or long for something to be better. And he wrote, um, he wrote kind of a satire, or not really satire, but he wrote, I'll just share a couple of lyrics with you that stood out to me back when I was, you know, 20 or so. Uh, there was a song he had that said, don't teach me about politics and government, just tell me who to vote for. Don't teach me about moderation and liberty, I prefer a shot of grape juice. Um, so, wow, there we go. Bam. Um, no, but he had, he had lyrics like that that would kind of draw me in and make me think about things. And then, um, you know, because I've followed him for a while, he, he's been going through more of a season of kind of loss and grieving and um, uh, divorce and different things with his families and feeling rejection from the church and, and distance from God. And you, you know this because he shares it online and, and kind of has written it into this latest album. And this latest album, it was so hard for him me to just be there and listen to because uh, because he's dealing he's it seems like where I can't say where he is and I you know I don't know his heart but it seems like from the songs that he is letting the doubts take him away from God and the last song that he played said goodbye for now and it was addressed to God goodbye for now and um, it hurt me to see that you know because as someone who had his, you know, God had used, you know, 12, 13 years ago to speak into my life and make me think about my faith. And now, you know, he's in so much doubt that I wish I could speak into his life and, and make him think about his faith. Um, but the, the reason I bring that up today um, because, is because Derek is not the only one who has doubts. Um, I have doubts. We have doubts. You probably have doubts. If you don't have doubts, then um, we can just do the songs now because the sermon is going to deal with some of that. No, everyone has doubts. And in fact, doubt has become something that's kind of glorified in our culture. It's, it's cooler. You get more cool points if you're more skeptical. You, have you noticed that? No one wants to be naive. No one wants to be seen as naive. So it's, it's better to be skeptical and have doubts than to actually be sure of something or to have faith in something. But doubt, um, you know, when doubt is glorified, it's more popular to seek God than it is to find God. Does that make sense? But doubt, uh, doubt shouldn't be glorified. Because doubt is just a part, ever since the fall, doubt is part of our natural attitude towards God. We all experience doubt. Has anyone 
with me on that? <laughs> all right, cool, all right. I'm in the right room. Um, doubt is part of our natural attitude towards God. And Thomas' story today reminds us a bit that doubt is neither an achievement, something to be proud of, like it is in our culture, and it's also not an embarrassment. Something to think, I can't believe I have these doubts. Because we've got a story of one of the apostles <laughs> who is, uh, you know, nicknamed Thomas the Doubter. Uh, bless his heart, as we would say in the South. The issue, what's at issue is not whether or not you have doubts, it's what you do with your doubts that matters. The world is not divided into people who have doubt and people who don't. We all will struggle with it from time to time, and some seasons more than others. And you may be here today, and maybe your doubts have to do with knowing if Jesus is real and if Christianity is true and if you can trust in God. Or maybe you're here today, and you're a Christian, and you've got different areas of your heart that you are doubting and saying, I don't know if I can really lean on that and trust in that truth that God has shared with me. The difference is not who has doubt and who doesn't. It's the direction of your doubts. Are your, are your doubts bringing you closer to God? Are they causing you to cry out in prayer and say, God, this is what I'm struggling with. This is what I'm going through. Like about half of the Psalms. <laughs> are the doubts bringing you closer to God? Or are they bringing you further away from God and putting distance between you and God? We tracking? So all of us struggle with doubt from time to time in some way or another. But ironically, the Christian life is a life of faith. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says it about as succinctly as you can. It says, we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. We don't walk just by everything that we can perceive with our senses. Not just by what we can see and what makes sense to us, but we walk by what we perceive in our hearts to be trustworthy and who we believe to be trustworthy. Romans 10.9. Again, the Christian life is a life of faith. Romans 10.9 says this. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Belief is central to the Christian faith. Even with doubts. And we're going to see that with Thomas, that even when he had doubts, he came to believe. But when we say we believe in God, we're saying we believe in who God has revealed himself to be. We're saying we believe in the message of the gospel, the message of the resurrection. We believe in who God says he is. Because we don't get to decide what is true about God and then tell him who he is. Does that make sense? When we believe in who God is and who Jesus is, as this passage talks about, we've got to make that step to believe God on his own terms. 
if you're going to have God as your God, if you're going to have the true God of the universe as your God, you've got to be willing to believe him on his terms. The light just went off right over there. Here's the deal, though. Many of us don't believe God on his terms. Maybe you do. Maybe you believe the gospel. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the Messiah who was prophesied, that, that He came and lived the perfect life on your behalf, and He died a de- your death for your sins, to forgive you of sins. And He was buried and He rose again on the third day to give you the promise of eternal life. Maybe you believe that, but I would venture that there's probably still an area or two where God's Word is confronting with your heart And it's easier to say, I want to believe God on my terms than on God's terms. Is that tracking? I'm not just talking about people out there who aren't at a Sunday gathering. I'm talking about all of us in here who have areas of our heart where it's easier to go according to our own terms than God's terms. There's aspects of our life where we've said to God, no, thank you. I like this and this, but not that. (laughs) Or this needs to be changed a little bit. And, uh, you know, really, what's more American than that? Um, One of our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson. Anyone ever heard of the Jefferson Bible? Yeah? He, He... was a deist, so he believed in God, but it's kind of like this belief in God where God, you know, constructs the clock and winds it up, and that's creation, and then he just sets it and goes, right? So God is kind of far just watching creation go on without his interference. And so he, Thomas Jefferson loved the teachings of Jesus, but he didn't believe in a resurrection. He didn't believe in the supernatural miracles that Jesus did, and so what he did was the equivalent of taking an exacto knife just kind of cutting those out and pasted together the rest of the Bible (laughs) that he liked and made the Jefferson Bible. In some ways, we do the same thing. Some ways, I'm guilty of the same thing. But what you end up with when you do that, when you come to God on your own terms, you don't end up with the true God anymore. You end up with a designer God. You end up with a cardboard cutout of the real God who may look kind of like it, but can't really help you when you go through trouble. It's a God made in our own image that can't help us when the rubber meets the road. But believing God on his terms, which is what I'm talking about today. (laughs) Believing God on his own terms actually frees you to have the true God as your God, and your God, and your God, and my God. All right? All right, so in this passage, as it opens up, John chapter 20, verse 19, I want you to notice, it says, on the evening of that first day of the week, so this is the first Easter. Vince preached about it a couple weeks ago when 
on the morning of the first day of the week when Mary Magdalene discovered that Jesus was not in the tomb and she went and told the disciples, well, this passage, this scene opens up, it's the evening of the same day, right? So they've been told, Jesus is risen and I saw him and he told me to tell you he's risen. <laughs> um, so that should be like super excited, right? This should be like a, this should be like a party that they're having. Um, so yeah, let's see how the party's going. Um, that first day of the week, it's evening time, when the disciples were together with the doors locked. So the doors are locked from the inside. Why? For fear of the Jewish leaders. So instead of rejoicing on this first Sunday worship service of the Seminole Church, instead of rejoicing, they're gathered and they're huddled in fear. Because you know what they did to Jesus? They might come do that to us. Well, yeah, Mary said he was risen again, but I don't know about that. <laughs> anyway, so they're, they're gathered in fear, and all of a sudden, Jesus says, Jesus came and stood among them, and the first thing he said was, peace be with you. Peace be with you. And as right after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, the wounds, the scars from where he had been crucified and pierced. And what does it say? The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. You know, when you encounter Jesus, there's something that happens when your fears melt away and all of a sudden you're, instead of full of fear, you're full of joy. Amen? He says, peace be to you. They're full of joy. He says these other statements that are just so power-packed, we could do a sermon series on the next few sentences that he says. He says, peace be with you again, right? So that's important. <laughs> I'm speaking peace over you. And then he says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. He gives them a mission to go out into the world. In the same way that he was on a mission, he gives them a mission. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. He gives them a mission. He, he gives them the Holy Spirit. He gives them authority to, to do ministry. And they are overjoyed. All right? So this is great. Next scene should be good, right? All good stuff. Verse 24, Thomas wasn't there. Oops. Um, we missed one. <laughs> First of all, I want to point out, Jesus knew that Thomas wasn't there. He's not surprised by that. So that's, that's not by accident. And we don't know where Thomas is. It doesn't say where he is. I mean, I'm assuming that he's afraid too. I'm assuming that he's isolated. Assuming that he doesn't know quite how to make sense of the fact that, that his rabbi was crucified two days earlier. Regardless of where he was, we know he wasn't here. Okay, well, that should be fine because uh, he was there with Jesus when Jesus was alive and ministering. He saw Jesus do miracles. He, he saw Jesus teach. He saw, he saw Jesus walk on water. He saw Jesus feed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fishes. 
He saw Jesus calm the wind and the waves with just his word, his word, which was peace, be still. Should be good, right? Oh, and all the other apostles that were there saw the risen Lord, and they were overjoyed. He should believe them, right? He saw all those things, but the only thing he didn't see was the resurrected Jesus. But surely all the others wouldn't have banded together to lie to him and play a sick practical joke. You guys with me there? Are you thinking through this? If you're Thomas... They wouldn't pull this together just to trick him and be full of joy about it. So anyways, Thomas wasn't there. He shows up and the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord! Exclamation point. They're excited. We have seen the Lord. But what does he say to them? Unless I see the nail marks in his hands... And put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side. I will not. I will not believe. And that's where Thomas gets his nickname. Thomas the Doubter. Doubting Thomas. Isn't that unfortunate? <laughs> you know, we don't call the other apostles by their like bad nicknames, you know? Like hothead Peter, arrogant James, John the smelly fisherman, right? I made that up kind of. He was a fisherman though. Um, but no, Thomas gets called the doubter because he had this one moment that we get described in the Gospel of John. Can't we just give him a break or something? <laughs> I mean, he eventually believed. He eventually gave his life for this gospel. But no, we call him Thomas the Doubter. Okay. But I would suggest to you that Thomas is doing a little bit more than doubting here. There's a little bit something going on under the surface of his words. Because when he's confronted with the truth of the resurrection and the apostles who have been commissioned to share this gospel, Jesus who was crucified is not dead. He is risen. And we have to tell the world about it. Thomas, we saw him. He's risen. And what does Thomas do? He doesn't just doubt. He makes a decision. I will not believe unless this, this, and this happens. He's willing to believe, but it's got to be on Thomas's terms. Does that make sense? He's willing to have as much joy as the other apostles have. He's willing to have a sense of purpose like the other apostles have. He's willing to be overflowing, to be full of the Holy Spirit. But it's got to be like I want it to, God. But Jesus chose to appear to the others and to have them tell Thomas. And it's as if God's ways of doing it weren't good enough for Thomas. He needed more, and he needed it on his own terms. And until it happens, I won't believe. And you know what? A week goes by. <laughs> it's not just a momentary, you know, we get to read it in just a moment here, but the next scene is eight days later. <laughs> Think about that. You've got ten apostles who are super stoked. 
And you've got Thomas over here like, nope. <laughs> Not risen till I see it. Don't believe it. ESV translation says, I will never believe. God's calling your number right now, brother. I'm just teasing. He says, I will not believe. And I know that me zeroing in on this may make Thomas sound bad, but the thing is, it's not just him. It's not just Thomas that does this, and it's not fair that he gets that nickname um, because we're not really that different from Thomas. And Thomas really serves as an example in this passage for all future believers who are going to believe in Jesus, including you and including me. Why? Because he, in this moment, has not seen the risen Lord. And he's being told the good news that Jesus is risen. And he has a choice of whether or not to believe it. Whether or not to believe it affects his situation here and now. And in that moment, he says, I will not believe. He refused to take God on his own terms. But the Christian life is a life of faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. And this faith, we have, we have to work with how God reveals himself to us. We can't set the terms. Because we're the creature, not the creator. What does it look like when... Okay, pause. Is this tracking? Is this tracking? Are you got, I don't know if anyone, if anyone, this hits me hard. This hits me hard. Because what Thomas is doing in this moment, I've done. In a thousand different ways. When I've said, well, yeah, I believe the gospel, but that doesn't change this. Yeah, I know I have joy in Christ, but that doesn't give me joy in my job. Yeah, I know God's in control, but that doesn't give me peace. What does it look like when we try to believe on our own terms, when we, try to, when we refuse to believe God on his terms? I think one way is it just saying we believe the truth, but that it doesn't apply to us in a certain area when we're going through it. A week and a half ago, I had a moment like this, and I haven't had just one moment like this. <laughs> I hope the message here today is, oh, Kenny's got it all together, and you guys just need to believe like him. No, I'm struggling through this. That's why I'm preaching it, because I found good news in it. But a week and a half ago, I was just feeling down and out, depressed. Just, I thought it was not another word for it, just depressed, right? Bad mood, and I had a meeting set up with Vince, and we were going to we have a weekly meeting, kind of deal with issues of the church and make plans and all that stuff. And, and we were doing that, and, and as we were sitting there, I was, I was you know, telling Vince, like, and I'm just like feeling horrible and, um, you know, just different, different thoughts of like, you know, I'm inadequate and you know, I'm not competent and I, you know, this and this and that. 
well, I'm not going to make you raise your hand, but I know some of you have felt that. <laughs> Everyone raise their hand. No. Um, and Vince, being the loving pastor and friend that he is, listened to me, tried to encourage me, trying to tell me, hey, you know what? There's other people. You know, there's other ministers who, who struggle with depression, too. There's other, you know, if you go back in history and you look at people who you know because you study them, like, they had bouts of just feeling bad. And, and, and um, this particular story, this wasn't a major thing. I don't want to make a bigger deal than it was. But And when Vince was trying to encourage me, I just kind of shut him off. You know, because I wasn't feeling it, right? What's that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and here's the point. I knew it, but I wasn't going to take that truth that I knew and put it here. I wasn't ready to, right? Until this and this and this happens, I won't believe. You guys see that? So it may not be that. Maybe your struggle is something different. There's a million different situations, I think, that we go through in life where, in effect, we are saying, we wouldn't say it out loud, but in effect, we are saying, I'm willing to have joy. I'm willing to have peace in my life. I'm willing to have a sense of purpose and know that I'm on God's mission as long as these things get met. God, and when you meet those, I'll be ready. I'll be ready to live a powerful life of mission for your kingdom. I'll be ready to cling to your joy even when I'm suffering. I'll be ready to have peace. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry if I'm getting too satirical. I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to. I'm just preaching to myself here today. Is that all right? Until, until God, you make it sound good for me again this time, or until then I'll believe. Thomas is refusing joy. He's choosing his doubts. He's siding with his doubts. You ever notice that we believe our doubts and we doubt our beliefs? You ever just flip those? We should doubt our doubts and believe our beliefs. But Thomas here is saying, I'm choosing doubt. I'm choosing unbelief. And you know what? Thomas is missing out. He's... We get to read about it, but Jesus is risen. Thomas is not living like it. The other disciples all have joy. They have a sense of purpose. They're here to tell other people about Jesus. They have a sense of authority, that, a humble authority that God said, whoever you forgive their sins, they're going to be forgiven. And yet Thomas here is missing out on joy, on peace, on the mission for his life on the authority, the God-given authority that he should have. And I want to ask, how much in life are you missing out on? How much joy, how much peace, how much mission, the purpose of God alive and awakening you? Because you already made a choice not to believe Jesus on his own terms, not to believe that he's victorious so you will be victorious, that he's risen so that you will rise again. And that it actually does affect the situation you're in right now that you're in your head thinking, oh, I don't know if it affects that. See, I know you guys better than you think. Thanks, Jesus. 
So we miss out just like Thomas was missing out by our own choosing. But how did Jesus respond to him? Well, he didn't show up with a whip. (laughs) I think the first thing is he showed up. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. So this is the next Sunday service, right? The second ever Sunday service of the whole church. And uh, I think Peter led worship and preached too. Um, Okay, no more jokes, sorry. A week later, they're in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, all right, guys, I don't know why the doors are locked again. But though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. A third time in this passage. Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Another way of translating that Those words that Jesus says at the end is, stop unbelieving and be believing. Don't be unbelieving, but believing. First thing we see is that Jesus met him graciously at his exact point of doubt. Can I just say, can I just remind you that Jesus is going to meet you wherever you are. If you're here today and you're struggling with doubts, God knows it, and God wants to show you love at that point. Jesus meets him at his exact points of doubt. Jesus challenges him at his points of doubt and says, Don't be unbelieving, but believing. He's not calling him an unbeliever. He knows that Thomas has a measure of faith. He knows that Thomas has seen his whole ministry. He knows that Thomas believes in him, but at this point, he has been unbelieving and choosing unbelief. And he says, stop that. Stop unbelieving and be believing. Stop doubting and believe. Depending on um, the different scholars or commentators that you read, they say that that Jesus' words here are are a gentle rebuke, because <laughs> he's basically kind of he's kind of I don't know if daring him is the right word or saying, "Look, you said you needed to see this. Do you see this? Stop doubting and believe." What does Thomas do? Next verse. Thomas said to him, verse 28, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. You see, we don't know. It doesn't say whether or not Thomas touched him. I think that's interesting. Because Thomas said, I'm not going to believe until I touch. It doesn't say he touched. But when God met him and when he encountered the Lord... I like to think he didn't even need to touch. 
he saw him, and instead of doubt, instead of missing out on joy and life, and instead of being filled with fear, he had worship. And all of a sudden, he knew who Jesus was, that Jesus was not just a man. He was not just one who could be defeated by death, that he was God in the flesh. Another translation of this verse is, you are my Lord and my God. Thomas is, is proclaiming here what the very first verse of the Gospel of John says. In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And now here, at the end of the book, Tom, it's personal. It's not just a theological truth out there that it's hard for us to understand. Okay, I get it, there's a Word, and the Word was God, okay. No, Thomas is here face to face with Jesus and says, my Lord, my God. When Jesus meets you in your point of doubt, when you believe in him, your doubts are overcome and you want God. You don't want God anymore on your terms. You just want God. When you encounter the risen Lord, when you believe, your heart melts in worship. When when you're believing in Jesus, when you're walking by faith, when you're walking in his terms, all of a sudden that frees you from holding on and choosing your doubts. It frees you from having to be God and having to have it all figured out and trying to keep it all together and failing miserably in the process and then looking to other things and other people to be God and to, and to fix you where you're broken it frees you from that whole mess of folding your arms when the rest of the apostles are overjoyed. It frees you when you believe. It frees you to trust in him. It frees you to sign over your life to God and say, you're God and I don't understand it, but I trust you. It doesn't make sense to me, but you're my Lord and you're my God. Notice Thomas says, my. He doesn't say, he could have said, you are the Lord and you are the God. But he says, my. Because Christianity is unique in this, that the God of all creation, the God who made this whole expansive universe that we are still learning about, that we don't fully understand, that Christianity says, when you believe in Jesus, you can call that God my God. You can even call him my father. Amen. How does Jesus respond in this moment of belief? Well, he responds with a blessing. He responds with a beatitude. This is the only beatitude in the Gospel of John. It's here at the here at the end of the book, near the end of the book. It says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs. This is, the, this is kind of the, 
the summary purpose statement of the book, and throughout this series, you probably heard us refer to it several times, but here it is in these two verses. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So he's the one who was prophesied about. He's the one that all the Old Testament prophets were looking forward to. Every, since Moses, they were looking forward to this promised Messiah, the Redeemer, the Savior. That you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. He's more than the Messiah. He's God in the flesh. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. You see, John writes this book and tells us what it's all about, what life is all about, believing in Jesus. You know, the word believe shows up almost a hundred times in this book alone, in the book of John. I think that's a theme. <laughs> that when we believe in the person and the work of Jesus. Verse 31 says that believing you may have life in his name. What about those areas where you're refusing to believe God or where it's difficult to believe God on his own terms, where it's difficult to say, I know that the resurrection applies to this. I know that because Jesus is who Jesus is that I have hope. What about those areas that you're saying, unless God does this and this and this, I won't believe until he does it. I won't have joy. I won't have peace. I won't be settled. You know, when Jesus entered the locked doors, he said to the disciples who were gathered in fear, he said it three times. He said, Peace be with you. And this was just a normal greeting in, um, normal Jewish greeting in his day. But it's a little bit more power packed in this setting. Because as they're huddled together in fear and he appears as the, their risen Lord and Savior. He says, peace be with you. And then it says that he showed them his wounds. He showed them his hands, showed them his side where he was pierced. He showed them the scars from what he went through on the cross. And what Jesus was showing him is that he was the fulfillment of what they had been looking for. Isaiah 53, 5, written hundreds of years before Jesus says this, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Instead of doubt, instead of isolation, instead of frustration, instead of hopelessness, Jesus was punished to bring us joy. To bring us peace. To bring us, to send us out with that joy and peace to the other people around us in our lives. To send us out full of the Holy Spirit, whatever we may face. 
there's an old song that we used to sing in a church that I grew up in. Um, what a friend we have in Jesus. And there's that verse that says, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. When I think of When I think of the punishment that brought me peace being on Jesus. When I think of his wounds. He was wounded so that I could have healing in him. And I think of the very real everyday things that we go through. I don't know. You may be sitting here saying, still, Kenny, this is I'm facing something big. And I realize that you are. I hope that nothing I've said today has belittled the personal struggles that we all have, and especially struggles with doubt. Okay? But when I think of it, there's a, there's a prayer that I read um, from Hannah Whittall Smith, who was a writer in the, in the 1800s. And she, she wrote a prayer um, that she would say over and over, and it was just four, is a four-word prayer. <laughs> it's, Jesus saves me now. And she talked about whenever she would be in a time of needing to rely on God or needing to be in tune with the Holy Spirit, she would pray that prayer and she would go through it, those four words, but she would emphasize a different word each time. She would say, Jesus saves me now. He's the one who's going to save me. I can't muster it up. I can't do it on my own. I can't fix it on my own. It's Jesus. Jesus saves me now. Jesus is on a mission to save my heart. He loves me too much to leave me where I am, but he wants to pick me up and hold me where I'm broken, and he wants to heal me. Jesus saves. Jesus saves me. That no matter where I am, no matter who I'm with, no matter what I'm going through, God's eye is on me right here in this moment. His love is directed and pointed toward me. And Jesus saves me now. Is that all right? You know, when I went to that show on Thursday night, and I, when I left the show, I, I just, and Derek had played his songs, there was so much hurt in my heart. There was so much, oh man, I just wish that I could just, I don't know him, but I wanted to take him by the shoulders. <laughs> like, hey, I know you don't believe it right now, but God loves you, and there's people who love you. And there's hope for you. You can write hopeful songs again. You can write songs that bring people joy and make people think about the kingdom and make people want to live for the truth again. There's hope for you, Derek. And the truth is, there's hope for you. There's hope for me. Doesn't mean we're not going to go through stuff. Doesn't mean we're not going to face challenges that are too big for us to understand doesn't mean that everything's just going to make sense and be hunky-dory and I'm the perfect Christian. No, but there is hope. There is hope when we believe in Jesus and who he is 
and how he's revealed himself and the message of the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you. Thank you for this moment where we are gathered gathered here in your presence. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for making yourself known to us, for revealing Christ to us. Thank you, Jesus, that you are not thrown off or intimidated by our doubts. By so many times, my heart has refused to believe Lord, but that you're patient with me. And God, I thank you for that patience that you have with each one who is here today. God, I pray that whatever it is in our hearts, Lord, if there's someone here where it's just on the top of their mind and they can't escape it, Lord, I pray that they would know that they have hope in you. God, that wherever anyone is on their journey today, that there is hope. In Jesus. And Lord, I pray that our hearts in, in a million different ways would, would go from choosing not to believe to saying, I believe, and to knowing you as my Lord and my God. And God, that we would be filled with life, that we would be filled with that peace, that you took our punishment so you could give us peace. That we would be filled with healing because you were wounded so that we would be healed. Just ask that. I pray for your hand. Spirit, I pray for your guidance over the next few minutes as we respond to your word. Bless each one who's gathered here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.